We're starting a new book of the Bible right now. We finished Jeremiah on Wednesday night. Thank the Lord. That was a long, brutal book. And now we have this really happy book called Lamentations. Why don't you turn there with me? The book of Lamentations. One of the things that when we go to Israel that you sense, uh, the Jewish people are so amazing on so many levels and God's chosen people. And it's pretty amazing to be in Israel and be in Jerusalem. But one of those places you see real lamenting is at the Western Wall there in Jerusalem. And uh, you know, I brought with me one of the pictures we took there uh, of the Western Wall where uh, you know, these Hasidic Jews are, you know, these guys are reading the Torah. And, um, and, but there, there you'll find in different places connected to the Wailing Wall, there's people and, and women just mourning and grieving. And the reason is because the Temple Mount is trodden down under the feet of Gentiles and the Jews can't go up to their own Temple Mount and they can't worship the Lord. Well, this kind of mourning is really, it really started radically with the book of Lamentations, uh, this, this kind of mourning. And, and you know, th- some of these stones that you can even see, like that stone there that the, that's got the chiseled edges um, you know, those are different eras of stones, depending on what the stone looks like. But some of the stones on the Western Wall go all the way back to the time of Solomon. <clears throat> and that's an amazing thing. If you can go down in, in the rabbi's tunnel, you can see the wall during the Solomon era. But what's so tragic is it went, Jerusalem went from the most glorious, beautiful city during the reign of Solomon to a total dump. And, and really, it, it's, it's tried to regain its former glory, but never has it done that. Now it will. Someday, Jerusalem will be restored in its former glory, and even then some, when Christ comes and rules and reigns in Jerusalem. But the book of Lamentations is really kind of the, the theme of, of largely the Jews. Uh, and I, I, as a musician, I always uh, marvel at uh, when you go to Israel and you hear all the music, you know, even their pop music in their radio stations. Have you ever noticed Jewish music is almost always in a minor key? You, you never hear, you know, a, a Jewish song that's like in a major key, hardly ever. Um, I had this sweet gal who was a musician in Israel. She was listening to our teachings online and she was so excited because she said, Pastor Brett, we're a band in Jerusalem and we're Christians and we listen to your teaching, and, um, but we have a band and, and we don't sing songs in a minor key. And, and I, she sent me a, a recording of her, of her music and I thought, oh, this is great. And I threw it in and sure enough, it was in a minor key. It was great. It was really good music, but you know, it's, shalom alakam. like it's that scary stuff. You know, it's like, there's nothing like, uh, happy about the, why, why are the Jews playing all their music in a minor key? Well, when you realize how oppressed and how persecuted and how hated the Jews have been over the centuries, you kind of start to realize. I believe that the Jews are gonna change their music when Christ comes. When they reveal, when Jesus is revealed, I think they're gonna change it from a minor key to a major key. And it's gonna be glorious uh, when, when all of Israel will be saved according to Romans eleven twenty five, But that lamentation, that mourning and sorrow and sadness has really carried on from this time of Jeremiah to even the present day. Now, here's the thing I wanna share with you today. Jeremiah writes this book of Lamentations and, and we're 99.99% sure that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. The Bible doesn't really say that, 
but it's implied and it's inferred and the writing style matches and extra biblical literature from the same period says Jeremiah wrote it. So we're pretty sure that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations and we know when he wrote it. If you remember the story that we've been studying, do you remember when the Babylonians uh, after that third wave in 586, they crushed Jerusalem, crushed the temple, crushed the walls of the temple. And do you remember, you know, they left that one guy, Gedaliah, uh, in, in charge, Gedaliah. Remember I called him Gedaliah? But Gedaliah was kind of this funny little leader that, that Nebuchadnezzar put in, in charge sort of temporarily. And this Ammonite group came, these sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, guerrilla warfare kind of guys came from Ammon and they killed Gedaliah and killed a bunch of the Jews. The, the few that were left there, they just killed them. And then they took Jeremiah and the others off into captivity and then Johanan came and rescued Jeremiah and the tiny group of Jews that were left. And now they're standing on the rubble of Jerusalem with the piles of rocks of walls and temples and they're just standing there and the guy that Nebuchadnezzar put in charge was murdered and they're thinking, oh no. Nebi's gonna come from Babylon and we're toast. They're gonna think we offed the guy that, he put, that Nebuchadnezzar put in charge. So they freaked out and said, Jeremiah, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. Seek the Lord, tell us what to do. And Jeremiah said, stay here in Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord, don't go to Egypt. We're not, we're not gonna listen to you, we're going to Egypt. Remember the story? They blew off Jeremiah and they took him off down to Egypt and then they all died there except for, you know, well, that's the rest of the story. But the book of Lamentations was written right in between the time where Gedaliah was killed and just before they left for Egypt. Lamentations. So you almost have to picture Jeremiah and just this tiny group of Jews with everything crushed around them. Um, the dust has barely even settled from the crushing of Jerusalem. And they're standing there freaking out, wondering what they're gonna do. That's when this book was written. These little chapters, it's a little book but it's lamenting. And one of the things that Jeremiah is gonna do here is these are actually poems. And we'll learn about how they're written in an acrostic sort of passion. Uh, that it's kind of an interesting thing. We'll learn that on Wednesday night. But I wanna show you in chapter one, a list of things that Jeremiah says, um, the reasons why um, things happened the way they did. And really eight things that, that um, that the, those reasons do to us. So, so basically, Jeremiah is gonna say, all of this has happened to us because of our own sin. It's our own sin that has brought this upon Jerusalem and upon us. And then Jeremiah says, and here's what our sin has done to us. Um, have you ever sat for a moment and thought, what has my sin done to me? Because if you don't measure that from time to time, you might just keep on sinning and not even realize that you're hurting yourself. We have to remember that sin hurts you and messes you up. We, we, we tend to think wrongly about sin and I, I harp on this all the time because I, I really get this. Uh, people just don't understand this one and as a pastor, I'm, I'm harping all the time. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God knows you, he made you and he knows what's good for you and he knows what's bad for you. And he's really smart and you and I are really dumb. And, and God says, here, I'll give you my word. This tells you what's right and wrong, good, bad, evil, you know, righteous. I'll show you what's good. And we all say, eh, we know better than you, God. 
We're like little preschoolers who think that it's okay to stick your tongue in the light socket. Um, you know, it's interesting, my, my daughter, Casey, who we, we laugh in our family because um, she's one of the more private of our family. You know, you guys all know Brooke and Joe and Debbie and me, and, but Casey's the smart one in our family and she's a school teacher and a really good one at that. But we're just glad she's still with us, why? Well, when she was like two years old, she was sitting uh, over in the corner of our little house that we lived in. And it was one of those old houses, 1939. You know, I'm, I think it was still the screw-in fuses and the electrical uh, system was not overly safe. Um, but I remember, you know, Deb and I, we, we stuck those little safety things in all the outlets all around the house. Well, Debbie one morning was looking for her keys and, uh, and, and, all, the, and all of a sudden Debbie found them. Why? Well, because Casey at two, she took the keys and she pried out the little safety cover and then stuck a couple of the keys in the socket. And Debbie found the keys because there was a bright flash of light and smoke. I'm not kidding, it went poof. And, and, and there was a burn mark on the wall and Casey was there holding the keys smiling. <laughs> We're still not exactly sure what happened there other than maybe the Lord just saved her, uh, spared her life. Uh, and so we super glued all the safety things over uh, the outlets from that day forward. But no, it, it, it was a scary thing. But what makes a two-year-old, when, when we're saying no, when we're trying to safety precaution it and everything, what makes a two-year-old, well, we just want to do the things. That's just human nature. We all do that. We want to do the things. When God says no, we, we say, why? 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 Remember Adam and Eve, of all the trees of the garden, millions of them, you can eat of all of them. There's one tree. And Adam and Eve, which one, which one was that? <laughs> like they should have said, yeah, okay, whatever. That tree, we're not gonna go there. We got a thousand other trees to eat from. But they had to go to the one tree. That's what kids do. They're magnets. They're little magnets to trouble. Um, and that's human nature, isn't it? And so God knows and I've likened it to, you know, if you go down to the Ford dealership today after church and you pick yourself up an F-150, brand new. But as you're driving out of the parking lot, you're kind of like, I like my new F-150 and, you know, and it's a great truck. But, you know, I'm from Portland and I, I'm kind of into Greenpeace and uh, I, I'm against oil. Oil's dirty and it hurts the earth. And so I'm going to drain the oil out of my F-150 because... I just don't like oil and I don't feel the need to change the oil. And the manufacturer, they're just legalistic. <laughs> they just wanna ruin all my fun. They wanna hurt the earth and so they've got the oil. And so you get under there and get your wrench out and you pop that drain plug out and drain all the oil. Ha <laughs> ha, I'm free from oil and slime and sludge. And so you say, I don't like oil because it's, it's crude. And so, <laughs> so then you, put the plug back in and you hop in the truck, and you fire it up, you start driving down the road, ha <laughs> I'm free. And you think you're doing great. The question I have is how long will a Ford engine go without oil? But any of you that know anything about mechanics and engines, it's not gonna last long. And the, the failure is gonna be catastrophic. You're gonna be sitting on the side of the road with a piece of junk and it's gonna cost you thousands and thousands of dollars to fix that because you didn't go with the manufacturer's specs. In the same way, the world just looks at God. We don't care about the manual. This is the owner's manual for life or humanity. We don't like the idea of you know, homosexuality being a sin. 
We're just gonna toss that out. Rip that page out like, you know, the King Jehoiakim and just say, I don't like that part. And the world has told me different and I don't believe God. See, you know, it's funny because today we're, we're still worried about, you know, poor Mr. Potato Head, he's gone. He's been canceled. <laughs> Mr. Potato Head's gone. Mr. Coffee, you're next, man, watch out. <laughs> it's funny to watch what's happening. And, and who, who is it that's saying there's, there, there shouldn't be gender? Like in the prophecy update the night before last, I was sharing how you know, they're trying to pass legislation that makes you know, brick and mortar stores stop having the girls and the boys toy section. You know, and, and, and also clothing, it should all be in the same section now. And they're trying to pass laws. Isn't it amazing what we're sitting around trying to figure out what, where the pink stuff should go and the blue stuff? Meanwhile, our capital is still barricaded with razor wire and, and we've got like trouble all around the world, but we're really focused on Mr. Potato Head and gender sensitive, you know, Fred Myers and stuff like that. It's a little weird. Who is it that says that, you know, the, the biology of a male and female doesn't matter? It's people that don't believe in God. Because God said he made them male and female. Male and female did he create them. Like he said it over and over. Even Jesus, God in the flesh came and said, male and female did he create them. And uh, every man should have his own wife and a man and a woman, one man, one woman. Jesus defined marriage in Mark chapter 10. And the world says, we know more than God because God is dead and God doesn't exist. Isn't it interesting? Like these are things that just fly in the face of truth. And, and even some of the secularists are like, are you kidding, really? Like, I know atheists that are saying, yeah, they're still kind of boy and girl. <laughs> like, biology matters. Like, like it's amazing that, that, that we're debating about this whole thing. Now, um, and we could go on and on. I mean, it, it, it touches all of us, this whole rebellion against the owner's manual. Young couples, we're living together before we're married. We're gonna have sex, because everybody has sex before they're married. Gotta try out the plumbing, see if it works. Meanwhile, as, you, as it turns out, the Bible says that's sin. And it doesn't say it's sin because God just says, you know what, I'm gonna choose to make sexual immorality sinful. That's not what happened. God says, I made you to have one sex partner your whole life. That's how I designed you. And if you do anything other than that, you're gonna be in trouble. It's gonna hurt you psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, physical health will be challenged with sexually transmitted diseases. One, monogamy is what God, now for those of you that were public school, monogamy does not mean one at a time, okay? <laughs> hey, this is stuff that your, your mama didn't tell you. I'm telling this to you, your pastor. <laughs> it's true, people don't get it, but God says, my word is clear on this one. It's good for a man not to touch a woman sensually is the idea. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication is the word, which means sexual immorality. Let every man have his own wife and wife have her own husband. Sex was created by God to be a beautiful thing and an awesome thing within the boundaries of marriage. Anything that's sexual in nature outside of marriage in the biblical definition is called sin. It's called fornication. And the world says, we don't believe that. And we wonder, what are the repercussions when we sin with sexual sin or any other sin? Well, Jeremiah does a really good job listing eight things for us here in, Jerem uh, in, in Lamentations uh, chapter one. Let's take a look and let's read these eight things and then we'll sort of break them down. Lamentations chapter one, verse five is where we'll begin. It says there in Lamentations 1.5, it says, Israel, Jerusalem, the Jews, her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. 
Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts or deer that find no pasture and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. Therefore, she has removed all that honored her, despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore, she came down wonderfully, or it's, it's full of wonder how horrible it was, is the idea there. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to, to relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. A nice peppy scripture for you guys on this Sunday morning. Don't you love it? <laughs> uh, this is what happens when you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. You get some of these really depressing scriptures. Um, you say, Brett, this is really tough, man. This is, he ends up, I'm a vile person. Well, that's a good thing to end on right there. We've been talking about that. In fact, going through the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, I think is really good for us to see some of the things about human nature. The Jews, these stories are recorded here for you and me to study and meditate on and think about. And what, you know, what uh, is really being mentioned here in Lamentations by Jeremiah is he's, he's saying, you know, the repercussions of sin are horrific. And the Jews, before all this happened, remember Jeremiah just spent the last 42 years preaching, break off your sin, don't sin against the Lord, don't do this stuff. But the Jews have said, yeah, whatever, look at us, we're prospering, everything's going great, and you're just a big, you know, Eeyore, you're a wet blanket, you're a negative Nelly. Jeremiah, but Jeremiah just kept preaching. And now between the death of Gedaliah and going down to Egypt, the Jews are sitting in rubble and Jeremiah is saying, our sin, it's our sin. You guys, listen, he's saying, it's our sin that brought us to this place of vileness. Our beauty is gone. There's, you know, he, he uses some crazy language. We're naked and there's filthiness under our skirt. What is he saying there? Well, let's get into that uh, since we're all depressed this morning. <laughs> um, if you're jotting down notes, eight things that he says. Number one, sin leads to captivity. Um, the, the first thing we have to understand is, is, and we've been talking about this even last week, I mentioned how sin leads to captivity or bondage. Remember how we talked about that? Um, you know, in Lamentations 1.5, at the very end of that verse, it says her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And that's exactly what happened. Whether you're talking about the remnant that went into Babylon, they would be in captivity because of their sin for 70 years. The small group with Jeremiah, they would be in captivity and death by the time they would get down to Egypt. It just worked out horribly. Sin leads to bondage. And we talked about this last week. 
In John, you know, chapter eight, verse 34, Jesus answered them and said, verily I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is what? Anybody? Right. We talked about that last week. So there was only one person here last week, uh, apparently. <laughs> no, yeah. You know, whoever committeth sin, Jesus said, he is the servant of sin. And the Greek word there is the slave. Literally the slave of sin. Now, this is again, Jesus, the one who made our bodies, knows us. He says, if you're committing sin, guess what? You're gonna be the slave of sin. You know, the world promises freedom, like we talked about last week. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, where it says they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. Whatever you're being controlled by, you're a slave to. That's what Peter says. That's what the Bible says. And as it turns out, did you know, this is something that old Bob Dylan told us years ago, uh, that you're gonna serve somebody. You're gonna be a slave to someone. If you're old like me, you were all excited back in, what was it, the 70s, I think, when Bob Dylan accepted Jesus as his personal savior. You guys remember this? And he became a Christian. And he even wrote a record called Slow Train Coming. You can still get the record, you know, online but probably the most famous song on that record of Bob Dylan. Now, Bob Dylan, you know, he's that guy that wrote, you know, thousands of songs for other people to sing. Thankfully, other people sang them. Um, I'm just kidding, I like Bob Dylan, but we listened to that record and, and there was that one song, you know, you may serve the devil, you may serve the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. That's a biblical truth, by the way. Who are you gonna serve? I'm not the servant of anyone. Remember we talked about that last week, the Jews said to Jesus, we've never been in bondage to anyone. What about 450 years, slaves in Egypt? They forgot that part. Remember that? But you know, Peter was saying, you're gonna have to serve somebody and, and so did Bob Dylan. Now the sad thing about Bob Dylan, by the way, I get off course here, but the church was so excited that we finally had a famous person who was a Christian. We smothered the poor guy to death. And the church, you need to do this, you need to do that. And everybody was pulling on him and stuff. And it freaked him out. And he bolted out of Christianity into Judaism. And then, you know, the Messianics and others kind of smothered him. And then he went into some more new age type stuff. And I don't know where he's at now, but I, I do pray that Bob Dylan will remember just not the church and the way we behaved back then, but remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I pray for that. But... He was right in that song, you know, you gotta serve somebody. And the question is, what are you a servant to? It's interesting, the New Testament, Paul and some of the New Testament writers willingly called themselves slaves. Do you remember that? Romans chapter one, verse one, Paul said, I, Paul, a servant. Now the word servant, it's changed meaning over the years. Servant used to mean real servant, like even the word slave. They were almost like synonymous, slave, servant. But over the years, we Christians have come up with that word servant and it's such a loving, endearing term. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And we become kind of weird about that. Uh, the word is doulos in the Greek, which literally is translated slave. Now, there is something about the doulos you do need to know. It's a slave that is a slave by choice. So, you know, in biblical narrative, when people say the Bible promotes slavery, that's just wrong and stupid. Bible doesn't promote slavery. God does seek to regulate slavery in human history. One of the things he made the Jews do when they conquered a people and made slaves out of them, uh, you know, when people attacked them and they conquered them and they didn't have prisons, so you could either kill them all or you could make them your slaves. But God in his mercy said, Jews, 
uh, on the seventh year, you have to let your slaves go. Now, what was interesting though, God made a provision for them to uh, let their slaves go. But if the slave really wanted to stay, they could make a decision on that seventh year where they put their ear lobe on the doorpost and they take an awl and punk, they punk, puncture the ear and put a ring in there. And that ring in the ear meant you were a, a slave by choice, that you were choosing to be the slave from that day forward. And the Greek word for that kind of a slave, the slave by choice, is doulos. So Paul, the apostle, say, I am a slave by choice of Jesus Christ. And he said that in Romans 1.1, Titus 1.1, he used that word doulos in, in reference of James even. In James chapter one, James uh, said, I am a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, James 1.1 says. Literally slave. So that's the question. Are you gonna be a slave to your sin or are you gonna be a slave to Christ? Because you're gonna have to serve somebody. Um, man, I hope you understand that you will end up serving either your sin and evil or you'll serve the Lord. It's gonna be an either or situation. Um, when people choose their sin, the problem is it sounds so good and it seems like you're getting away with it. Like the F-150 driver, he might be driving along freely without oil for a while, a mile maybe or two. I don't know how long it'll go, but but just like your sin, you'll think you're pulling it off or getting away. In fact, not only that, the Bible admits there's pleasure, Hebrews 11, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but it's gonna break down and you're gonna be a slave to that sin. So we talked about that last week. Sin leads to captivity. Number two, sin destroys beauty. Sin destroys beauty. Lamentation six. It says there in Lamentation 1.6, I should say, it says, and from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. All her beauty is departed. Uh, we mentioned Jerusalem during the Solomon reign. It was beautiful. You know, the Bible says during Solomon's reign in Jerusalem um, that silver was like gravel in Jerusalem. Gold was prolific and the, the city was beautiful and Solomon had built it up in all its glory and beauty. Um, I've got the, the wailing wall behind me here uh, on this picture. Uh, you guys can't see it, sorry. Uh, but it is kind of faded to the back of these uh, pictures. That, that, that is the Western Wall and that, that stone is Jerusalem limestone. And if you build a building in Jerusalem, the building codes require you to use that rock. You have to. Now you can use different forms of that, the rough stuff like the wailing wall, or they even have a polished version that they make it look like marble and it's beautiful. But no matter what, you have to build a building out of Jerusalem limestone. So the reason that's so cool is, is uh, Jerusalem, as the sun is going down, you know that golden hour of the evening, Jerusalem just lights up as the golden city. It's really amazing. You've seen pictures maybe of you know, the, the Temple Mount and, and the city uh, in the evening. It's just breathtaking. And you can imagine its glory during the time of Solomon, but what happened to the beauty from the time of Solomon to the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah nails it. He says, from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, in the Lord's timing, he makes all things beautiful. The problem is with you and me and our sin, it makes all things ugly. Sin uglifies everything. Sin destroys beauty. 
I can think of maybe no better example of this than uh, the meth user. Have you guys seen those pictures online of police uh, mugshots? Like they have these amazing pictures that are just really tragic, if you ask me. You know, they'll show a woman who was 25 years old and her first arrest, and then like five consecutive arrests after that. And in five years, the meth user goes from the 25-year-old beautiful girl to looking like a 90-year-old woman. She's lost her teeth, her eyes are sunken and, and dark circles under her eyes, skin, you know, scabs, uh, scabbed up, and this premature aging, like meth does a number on you so badly. Like, like it's such an amazing, horrible thing. And the, the sad thing is the meth user is kind of like the last person to see it or to even know that it's happening. Man, uh, I've got a few stories about this, but one story, even in the recent years at Athey, had a couple come up and they were meth users. And they, some, one of their friends dragged them to church, Athey Creek, and they, they heard the message, they accepted Christ the Sunday morning they came, the very first Sunday they came. And they, they told me that from the moment they accepted Christ, they had lost all desire for not only drugs, but alcohol. And they were like, uh, you know, totally headed down this horrible spiral of meth use, and they were already starting to see some of those signs, but for over a year now, they've been clean and sober. Man, that's what the Lord does. Isn't that great? You know, the Lord makes all things beautiful. Sin uglifies everything, that's what happens. The problem is, those of us that are committing sin, we're the last ones to see how ugliness is happening to us. What happens to the sinner? I'll tell you, the New Testament tells us what's happened. We lose feeling, we start to lose discernment and a sense of, of the ugliness that's happening to us. <laughs> I remember uh, working out at the gym, I know that's a shock, but I was at the gym one day, you know, on the uh, elliptical. But um, me and the guy that we were working out there together, we couldn't help but feel sorry for this one lady um, and like, we almost just wanted to say a prayer for her right there because um, she was, she looked like a Holocaust victim. Like she was so stick skinny, um, not a, a, a stitch of fat on her. And she just looked like she was a, a skeleton. And she was on the treadmill just burning it up. And, and I just thought, man, you know, now, now I have to say, believe it or not, I know you guys probably think I'm the last guy to know about this, but in counseling over the last, you know, 30 some years of ministry, I have talked to a lot of people, specifically women, who have had to deal with eating disorders. But the hardest thing in dealing with eating disorders is the, the view of what that person sees of themselves. And you've all seen it, the anorexic, the bulimic. You know, you're saying, you look wonderful. You gotta stop losing weight because it's, you're being, but there, it doesn't even really register. It's not even, it's not even on the registry when you try to talk to them. And uh, by the way, I've seen the Lord deliver uh, people out of that. That's a horrible pitfall. The eating disorder thing is a real problem. I believe it's deeply a spiritual problem, largely. Um, when a person sees themselves in light of Christ, man, you start to see the love of God and, and how he loves you and accepts you. And man, it's such a beautiful thing, but the Lord makes all things beautiful, but sin, it destroys and makes things ugly. How does a person get to where their sin is making them uglier and uglier, but they're the last one to know about it? The Bible tells us. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. That tells us this. It says, Now the Spirit it speaketh expressly that in the latter times, especially in the last days, which I believe we're living in those days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits 
doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. One of the things that sin does, when you and I engage in sin, we just keep doing it and eventually our conscience, now that's just a fancy word for knower. It's like the birds that know how to fly south for the winter. How did they get that knower? That was a God-given, we call it instinct. But the Lord gives that to birds and, and some of us are even a little smarter than little bird brains. And the Lord gives us things that we know that are wrong and, and we're convicted of. But as you just keep engaging in those sins against the Lord over and over again, eventually your conscience, your knower, becomes seared, losing all sense and feeling of what's really happening. And it's oftentimes the sinner who's the last one to recognize that their, their life has fallen apart. It's getting uglier. They're hurting themselves. It's like the meth user. It's like the alcoholic. Oh, I could quit at any time. But everybody in their life is saying, uh, we don't believe you. We see your life going down the tubes and you're still not quitting. You've lost your family. You've lost your job. You've lost your driver's license. I think you have a problem. I've had good friends who I deeply cared about and loved who got into that saying, I, I've got it under control, but they lost all those things and eventually lost their lives. I have two friends that died specifically, good friends that died specifically of alcohol poison. So when old Pastor Brett gets up here and starts preaching about drunkenness, I see it too much. Drunkenness is a sin. It's not sinful to drink alcohol. It's when, when, when that sin starts to control you, when you're, when you're unable to control that, man, your conscience becomes seared like with a hot iron. Ephesians, Paul talked about it in Ephesians 4.19 as well. He said, who, those of us who being past feeling, what's that? You don't sense anymore, you're, you're past feeling. It's like you've got calluses built up and you don't feel it anymore. I remember when I was a little kid, you know, um, we'd always be so impressed because my dad, you know, my mom would carefully pull the pot out of the oven with the, you know, little pot uh, heater thingies and she'd pull those out and my dad would just pick the pan up and kind of move it over. And, and, we, and my mom's like, careful, that's hot. And my dad would just kind of slowly walk with us. And how did he do that? We didn't know. It's because he had these massive calluses. It was like, he could just clink. Uh, they almost were like magnetic, clink, clink, clink. And he could just kind of, you know, it was amazing to watch that. Um, but that's what happens. We lose sensitivity and no longer do we feel the heat of sin. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, uh, to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's what Ephesians 4 says. So we, because of our losing our sensitivity to what's actually happening to us and our lives are being destroyed and our beauty is being destroyed of our, the creation that God has made in you, we don't even realize that our sin is destructive. Number three on our list of such encouraging things. Sin weakens us. Man, this is so true, and I could spend a lot of time on this, but how many great men and women of history were once doing great and mighty things, but weakened by their sin? You know, there's famous Bible characters, David. David, his whole life, from the time he slew Goliath, or maybe even before that, when he killed the lion and the bear, defending the flock, David was just getting mightier and mightier, and he killed tens of thousands of enemy soldiers. Like, the guy was a war hero, total stud, did everything amazing. David just kept, he was on the rise. What was the point when David's life started getting uglier and when he was weakened and really his, his, his kingdom never really recovered? Like if you read the biblical narrative, David's the last part of his life was miserable. 
What, what happened to David? It's his sin with Bathsheba when he committed adultery with another man's wife and then trying to hide that adultery, he murdered the, man's, the, the wife's husband. Like that was a horrible sin. And, and like the Ford F-150 guy, ha ha, I got away with it. No oil in the engine. David said, ha ha, I got away with it. I covered up my sin and nobody knows about it. But the Bible says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. Numbers 23, 32. And David had to learn this the hard way. Eventually the prophet Nathan comes stumble, stumble in. And, uh, David, I got a little story I wanna tell you. Remember the story of the neighbor and the lamb and the guy killed the other guy's lamb and David got all man and said, that man should surely die. And, and then Nathan said, you're the man. You've taken another man's wife. And David said, oh, I have sinned against the Lord this day. And he wept and he mourned. And, and Nathan said, the Lord's gonna forgive you, David, but you're gonna have trouble the rest of your life, including losing his baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with. Like this horrible, sad story. And David never really recovers. How, how did David feel when he was covering up his sin? The Bible tells us in Psalm 32, it's very clear in Psalm 32, how sin weakens us. Uh, Psalm 32, verse three and four, it says, when I kept silence about my sin, David said, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He said, for day and night, thy hand, Lord, was heavy upon me and my moisture has turned into drought of the summer. And then he says, Selah. Stop and think about that. What were we supposed to stop and think about? That, that he felt like a little old man. His bones waxed old and he was dry. He was going through a dry drought in his life and his heart. David tells us he was weakened. Here's this mighty man who did mighty things, but because of his sin, he was taken down into weakness. What about Samson? Samson's the classic picture of how sin weakens us in Judges. Chapter 16, verse 20 through 21. You know, uh, Samson was just dabbling in sin, sleeping with prostitutes, drinking wine with the Philistines and doing all kinds of dastardly sinful things. And it seemed like he was getting away with it. So much so that I think he was convinced he was the exception to the rule. That's always the way of the sinner. We think we're gonna get away with it. Everybody else is gonna get caught. Be sure if this is sin, we'll find you out, but the sin will not find me out. We think this. That's what Samson's mindset was. And then that night came where, you know, Delilah lulls him to sleep and finally he reveals the secret. She cuts off all his hair. And it says in Judges 16, 20, 20 and 21, it says, Delilah said, Samson, the Philistines are upon thee. And Samson, he awoke out of his sleep, the Bible says. And he said, I will wake myself up as other and shake myself. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. But the Philistines took him, it says there in verse 21, and poked out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass where he then did grind in the prison house. What a sad scripture. The mightiest, strongest, literally, the strongest man that ever walked the face of the earth has now become weak like any other man. Why? Because of his sin. So sad to see how great people have cut short. You know, the Bible says, and Samson judged Israel for 20 years. He could have judged Israel for 50, 60 years, but because of his sin, it was cut short. Proverbs chapter five, um, verses seven through 10, it says this about the strange woman. What's Solomon talking about in Proverbs five? Well, this is an important thing. Have you noticed 
the interesting thing about the sin weakening a person, did you notice the examples I've given and many of the Bible examples are linked to sexual immorality. David committed adultery. Samson was sleeping with a prostitute. Um, but what does Solomon say about this? Solomon talks about the strange woman. The strange woman is a biblical idiom talking about the woman who's a stranger to God's truth and the Jewish way and the law of Moses. And these were women that were like foreigners that would come in and they, would, they were prostitutes from other lands and trying to lure the young Jewish boys. Uh, be, and they, they did this purposefully. Some of the other nations like the Moabites and others literally got their young girls all prettied up and sent them down to the young Jewish boys. Hey, go sleep with them and we'll mess with their kingdom. They did this all on purpose. So Solomon writes something about, now just a question before we read what Solomon says, did he know anything about women? Maybe not, but he was married to 700 of them and then had 300 additional concubines. This guy knew about sexual immorality and perversion because he was the poster child of that. And at the end of his life, he writes this and he says, says this, it's Proverbs 5 or 7. He says, hear me now, therefore, O you children, about the strange woman, depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her and don't come near the door of her house lest, listen, he says, here's what's gonna happen, lest you give your honor to other people and your years become cruel and lest strangers be filled with your wealth and thy labor be in the house of a stranger. Solomon's saying, listen to me, I know this by experience, he's saying, don't do that sexual immoral act because you're gonna be robbed of your wealth and your strength and sin just messes you up, it weakens you. Sin weakens you. Number four, I promise we're gonna end on a happy note, but not yet. Sin makes other people happy. <laughs> Sin makes people laugh at you. And I say people there, I should say probably the world, secularists, atheists. Sin makes people laugh at you. Look at Lamentations 1-7 here in our text. At the very end of that, that verse, it says, the adversary saw her and did mock her Sabbaths. The world loves to laugh at Christians and believers when they fall in sin. They love it, they relish have you seen what they do with, when pastors fall, moral failures? Or when any Christian falls or fails for that matter. And the world just loves it. Ha <laughs> ha, what a, what a hypocrite. Christians are hypocrites. Now this is a big cop out if you ask me. Because there are pastors who failed morally and um, Christians who fail morally all the time. We all fail. We all sin. We shouldn't be shocked at that. But it's funny how the world seems to relish when a believer falls or fails. You know, Ravi Zacharias, he was our champion apologist. We all loved Ravi. Like he was the guy that we'd watch on YouTube and just be stunned as he talked to the atheists with love and compassion, but he defended the Bible ferociously. We were, we were a big fan of Ravi and then he dies, fairly old man. And then it all comes out. And if you've, it's been all over the news. I'm not gossiping. I mean, this is all over. And the world loves it the great apologist for the Christian church was sexually immoral. And a bunch of people have come out now and it's just so tragic, the whole thing's so tragic to me. But I also realize that the world just loves it. They love to laugh at the sin of the people. And, and that's, what, 
That's what's happening here. Jeremiah is saying, look at the world. They're mocking our Sabbaths. The idea is, you know, we used to be a people of, of, of God keeping the Sabbath day. And now they're, they look at you, you Christians, if you would, or you Jews, you guys are, you guys are losers. You get your hypocrites. By the way, on the old hypocrite argument, most Christians I know aren't saying we're perfect and we're sinless. Uh, a good Christian will say, you know, I like Paul, I'm sinful and I make mistakes. What we are saying is here's what the Bible teaches. And we believe the Bible and we wanna try to do what the Bible tells us. A lot of us, we try and we make mistakes, but that's the, the church I know. But the world sort of paints like this. You Christians, you tell us to all do good things and then you don't do good, so you're hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. Such an easy cop-out, such a stupid thing. Let me, let me just explain this. Christians, the reason you can call Christians, churches like us, hypocrites is because we have standards and morals. If you're a worldling out there and you have zero standards and zero morals, it's impossible for you. Yeah, they're like, yeah, I'm not a hypocrite because I don't have any standards or morals. Is that really better? <laughs> to sit around and say, yeah, I have no morals or standards, so I can't be a hypocrite and you are a hypocrite. Like, that's just ridiculous. Um, most of the church I know, none of us are saying, yeah, we've got it all down and we're really good and all that stuff. No, most of the church I know is like, yeah, we're sinners and you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, but praise be to God, he's the one who saves sinners. Man, I love that. Proverbs 14 tells us more about this mocking. It says in Proverbs 14, verse nine, fools make fun of guilt or sin, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. Micah, the prophet, chapter seven, verse eight, he says, do not rejoice over me, the idea of his sin, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise when I sit in darkness and the Lord will be a light to me. You know, Micah got a sense that the enemy was mocking when, when Micah made a mistake and sinned. Number five, sin brings about nakedness. Oh, this is one that Adam and Eve learned right out of the gate. The very first sin, what's the first thing they recognized after eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Whoa, hey Adam, you're naked. Well, so are you, Eve. And they went and hid themselves in the bushes. To make matters worse, what did they do? They made clothing out of fig leaves. Now, last time we were in uh, Israel, I was in Tel Dan and I pulled down a branch just kind of, and we, I showed them the fig leaves of the Middle East. I would rather wear poison oak. Like seriously, the fig leaves in the Middle East, it's got that little hairy, furry stuff on the sides of it. And it's, it's like got little microscopic burrs. So like when, when you touch it with your skin, it leaves a red mark. Like it's, it's almost like stinging nettles. Like, like the fig tree, the, 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 the leaf itself is like, it's brutal. So Adam and Eve, they're there, okay, we gotta cover our naked. Let's, 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 let's make some fig leaves. And they, they put them on, you know, uh, okay. Ooh, <laughs> kind of burns. <laughs> and the Lord, I love in his compassion. What does the Lord do? He makes of animal skins. Without the, the, the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Isn't it What a picture. Already in the Garden of Eden, we got the picture of sacrifice and how the blood offering covers the sins of the people. But I hope you understand, sin brings about nakedness. And, and the one you have to be most concerned about is you're naked and open before the Lord. This is not new. This is something Hebrews 4.13 told us a long time ago. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest or made known in his sight but all things are naked and open unto him, the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's what the Bible says. The Lord sees it all and you're naked open before the Lord. And I hope you understand, I hope we understand 
that we're not covering everything up. And if you try to cover it up, you end up with fig leaves that burn. It's, it's quite a picture. Only the Lord is the one who can cover our sins. So sin brings nakedness. Number six, sin brings about filthiness. Now, I hate to bring, and those of you that didn't drop your kids off in Sunday school, I'm sorry, but we warned you. What kind of filthiness are we talking about? There's a language here that you might miss, but it, it's, it's clear what we're talking about here. It says, verse nine, her filthiness is in her skirts. What's this talking about? Well, it has to do with what David, remember David had multiple wives? And David ends up in his old years, remember I told you his life just kind of kept going downhill as, as he got older? Now we'll see David in heaven because he was forgiven of his sins. But one of the things we read, David says, I have this loathsome disease in my loins. There's a Bible memory verse for you. <laughs> what did David say? Did he say that in the Bible? Yep. And it says his wounds of his loins stink. Like this is horrible stuff. But this is the same imagery Jeremiah is employing to talk about the sin. See, it's amazing how the Lord, the Lord compared the Jews' sin of worshiping pagan gods and pagan deities to sexual immorality. Like the Lord makes that connection all the time. Remember Hosea the prophet and his wife, the, pro, the, the prostitute? And how she prostituted herself and that whole marriage was a picture of Israel and God. Like God always likens you know, this, the Jews' behavior to, to fornication, sexual sin. And then he says the results of that, it brings filthiness, filth, filthiness under the skirts. It's a horrible image. James chapter one, verse 21, he reminds us, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. The world says you could do this and you can do that, but it's all filthiness. And we wonder why are we sick with sin and diseased with sin? Why does our sin stink? And the Bible says the word is the, the guide. The Bible is what tells us what's right and wrong. Forget what humanity says and believe what the Bible says. James says, lay aside all that filthiness of the flesh. The next one, number seven. What else does sin do? This is a painful one. Sin takes away the things we love. I should say things and even people. Notice verse 10, it says, the adversary has spread out his hand. The idea is the adversary has reached out their hand to take, has spread out her hand um, to, uh, upon all her, Israel, Jerusalem's pleasant things. For she hath seen that heathen entered into her sanctuary. Jerusalem was beautiful and pleasant. They had great things. And then the enemy came and just took those things away. That's what sin does. It robs you of the things you love and care about. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes we try to gain more in this life. We want more. So we do it in sinful ways. We blow off God. We blow off truth. And we do things that are contrary to God. We're dishonest and we... And we wonder why we're losing life. Well, Jesus talks about this. We, we lose the things we love because like in Matthew 16, 25 through 26, Jesus made this really clear when he said this. He said, for whosoever will save this life shall what? Lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? 
Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is talking about this stuff about, you know, you can try to gain this world through sinful means, but you're gonna lose it. You think you're gaining, but you're losing. That's what the Jews were doing. We're gonna worship Baal because that's prosperity. We're gonna worship Astroth because that gives fertility. We're gonna worship Moloch because killing our children on the altars is good. Like they, they, they were just doing all this horrible stuff. And now what happens, they sit on a pile of rubble and most of their families and kids and people are dead on the hills of Jerusalem. They've lost everything. Sin takes away the things we love. You know, what about the story of Achan in Joshua 7? Classic example of a guy who took stuff, thinking that even though it was sinful, he took the cursed thing, a wedge of gold and silver, took some Babylonianish garments, stashed them under his tent. He and his family hid the stuff. Their stash under the tent. And then they go, Jerusalem, or the Jews go to battle, to the battle of Ai, and, and they get trounced. And Joshua says, Lord, what happened? And the Lord says, somebody in your camp has taken the accursed thing. And you remember the story. Joshua starts calling out to all the Israel and he says, okay, all the tribes can go home except for this tribe. Just happened to be the tribe of Achan. And then he started dividing up the families that, okay, the sons of Carmi and the sons of Zabdi. And he started parsing it all out. And finally, there's Achan standing before Joshua and Joshua said, Achan, why have you taken the cursed thing? You've brought this curse upon us. And they took all of Achan's stuff, his tent, the stuff that he stole himself and his family, and they threw him in a big fire and burned them all. Horrible story in the Old Testament. And after the family of Achan and everybody was all burned in that pile, they called that place the Valley of Achor, for that was the place where Achan had taken the accursed thing. Some of you guys read that story like, what was that all about? That's a horrible story. It's another picture of what sin does. It takes away the things we love. And so some of you, some of you know this, you older people that have lived some life, there's, there's people in this room who, because of their sin, lost their families. The divorce happened. The kids no longer speak to you because you left this and you did that. And the sin left you wanting. You were trying to gain more by that little sexual fling, but you lost everything. There's people in this, in, this, in this room who once had the things that they cared about and loved, but because of that addiction and, and that alcohol or that, those drugs, they lost it all. Sin does that. God says, I don't want you sinning, not because I'm just forbidding stuff that you love to do. He says, I don't want you sinning because you'll lose the things you love. That's one of the results of sin. One more. Happy little point. Sin leaves us hungry. This is the worst one of all, if you ask me. <laughs> Lamentations 111, it says, and the people sigh. Now, why are the people, why are they sighing? They have given their pleasant things for meat. What does it say? It says, all our people sigh, verse 11. They seek bread. They seek bread. They're hungry. They have given their pleasant things. The last things that, they, that were left over, they gave whatever was left so that they could just get a little morsel of food for meat, but then they find themselves vile. They're weakened because they're hungry. The, the other example is there in verse six at the second part, like the deer that found no pasture. They're, they're starving little skeletal deer running around and they're so weak, they can't even flee from the hunter. That's the problem. And, and Jeremiah says, man, the sins that we have done, we thought they would fill us up, but they left us hungry. Now, if you take two types of food, let's just say a ribeye steak 
Uh, no, let's go with ribeye. Let's go with a tomahawk steak. Does anybody know what a tomahawk steak is? If you don't know what a tomahawk steak is, you need to leave this church, okay? <laughs> Find another church. Don't even come here. No, I'm just messing with you. Um, no, the tomahawk steak is a ribeye that's uh, giant. Um, and it's got this huge bone in it like this. So you hold that up against, it's got a thing you can hold on to. I like a ribeye that you can hold on to. Um, look it up, Google it. Uh, so the ribeye, the, the tomahawk steak versus a cotton candy. <laughs> Which one's bigger? Well, technically, if you get out of tent measure, the, the cotton candy's probably bigger. It's a big blob of food. But if you could liken one to sin and one to righteousness, I love this example. Man, sin is like cotton candy. It promises big, but delivers little, man. You take a big bite, where'd it go? And you taste this sugar and you feel a little sugar buzz and you've kind of, uh, but, but that's all you get. And you take a few more bites and then it's gone. And you're like, man, I'm starving. But I bet most of you, not all of you, but most of you couldn't even eat a, a tomahawk steak. It's just meaty. And it's got lots of protein and nutrition. <laughs> I love it. The Bible says that, you know, the people that, if you're hungry, you need to eat the meat of the word of God. Some people are still just drinking the milk. But the milk's good because that's the gospel, but, but you need to move on from the milk to the meat. The Bible compares itself to like eating but sin, you know, the things of this world, it promises, oh, that little sexual fling, it'll make me satisfied. No, it'll leave you hungry and you'll want more and you'll keep doing it to try to keep feeding that hungry situation. Matthew chapter five, verse six talks about this. Blessed are they, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled if you're hungering and thirsting for sin, you will be empty and hungry. That's a promise of God's word. But if you hunger and thirst, Jesus said, for things that are righteous. What is righteousness? It's simply just right living. <clears throat> Besides you know, being made righteous through the <clears throat> covenant relationship between you know, God through Jesus Christ, that's, that's how we're made righteous. But, but Jesus then said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. You'll be the one who's filled in this life. Not that any of us are practically righteous perfectly, but if you, you show me a man or a woman who is trying their best to do things God's way, their marriage, their family, their life, their home, their church life, you show me a person that's living that righteous life as best they know how, I'll show you a full and blessed and happy person. It's as clear as clockwork, it's math. If you live righteously, man, you'll be happy. Jesus said that, blessed. The word blessed is just a fancy way of saying happy. Happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. That's good news because guess what? Some of you might be feeling a little bit bummed right now. Brett, this is a depressing sermon. I brought grandma today and now she's gonna think I go to this preacher fire and brimstone church about sin. I like to always end on this because, in fact, I gotta say this, um, <clears throat> I feel like there's so many churches <clears throat> that they try to mention the gospel of Jesus Christ and it sounds pretty good and they, the people are like, oh, maybe we could. But, but I love looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ with the black backdrop of what I just taught you guys. 
What's the black backdrop? You know, when you go to the, remember the jewelry store, you go to, you know, Shane Company down there and you, they, they break out the diamonds. What do they always do? They pull out that black velvet uh, little background thing. Why do they do that? Scientifically, it's true. The sparkle of a diamond is brighter with the black backdrop. If you just let the diamond sit out in open light, it's not as impressive. And if you would, you know, the, the, the things that sin does to us, leaving us hungry and, and naked and, and filthy and, and weak and in captivity, all these things we've been looking at, we just kind of go, oh, this is really bad. That's the black backdrop. And then you look at the diamond. See, here's the thing. I love the book of Lamentations because it's really depressing, but smack dab in the middle of this book is one of the most glorious verses I can think of. I probably shouldn't show it to you. I should save this for later. But you all look pretty depressed. <laughs> so let, let's go to one more scripture. Turn with me to Lamentations chapter three. Just a page to the right. Lamentations chapter three, verse 21 through 23. I, one of my favorite sections of scripture right here. It says in Lamentations 3:21, Jeremiah, in light of all the things he just shared, he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Here's Jeremiah sitting in rubble with a bunch of Jews with dead bodies laying around. And he says, I have hope in this one thing. Verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. <laughs> Remember the old hymn? It's a great old hymn because it really reminds us of this truth. He said, Jeremiah says, there's one hope I have that the Lord's, well, his compassions were not consumed because it's the Lord's mercies that were not consumed. His compassion doesn't fail. And they're new every morning. Every single morning, his mercies are new. It's like that old hymn, morning by morning, new mercies we see. You see, you can mess up your life with sin and we have and we do but the Lord, every day is a new day and you can confess your sins. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Joel the prophet talking about sin uh, compared to the locust swarm that wiped out the whole world at that time. And Joel the prophet said, the Lord is able to what? Restore the years the locusts have eaten. And man, I've seen that. Some of you have lived lives where all eight of these things you've experienced, weakness, filthiness, captivity. You've been through all these things, but as the Lord brings you through with his mercy and his compassion, you today can stand and say, but I'm headed to heaven and the Lord has forgiven me for my sins. And now the Lord has strengthened you. And like Ecclesiastes in his time, he makes all things beautiful. Man, I love the black backdrop. Without preaching that, you can preach a weaker gospel. You gotta know the ugliness of sin before you can know the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus died on the cross for their sins in their place substitutionarily, they get to be saved. What a glorious, glorious truth that is. So you don't have to wallow in your sin and your misery. You might recognize that you've been a victim of your own sinfulness. But the good news is the Lord, he fixes that. He fixes that and tomorrow's a new day. Did you know the Jews look at a day very differently than we do even to this day, back in Bible times, but even today? You and I, we start our day as soon as the alarm clock goes off. Okay, this is the beginning of our day. We start at the sunrise and we go and then it gets darker and darker and then finally we conk out. 
The Jews? Do you know when they're... Let me ask you this. When does the Sabbath day start for the Jews? Anybody? Friday evening when the sun goes down. Their day starts when the sun goes down, when it gets dark. It starts with dark, but then it just gets brighter and brighter. I love that, but that's the way of the Lord. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. That's the Lord that we believe in. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? There's no better way to be than to have your sins forgiven, amen? Amen, amen. let's pray. And Lord, as we close this service out, I pray that we would be joyful knowing that it's of your mercy and of your compassion that's new every morning and your faithfulness, not our faithfulness, not our ability to do better or to do more. Lord, how I pray for this congregation that we'd rejoice daily. And I pray that your goodness, your kindness would lead us to greater repentance. Help us not to get sucked into the stupidity of sin. Help us to be wise and follow your word, the manufacturer's specifications. Help us to do the right thing, Lord. And in particular, I pray for our young people. Lord, the world is working overtime trying to suck our young people into their wicked, sinful mindset and worldview. Help our kids to stand firm and let your word be the lamp unto their feet and the light unto their path. Just with an attitude of prayer, as you guys are just uh, with the heads bowed, if you're one who wants to be a Christian, did you know you can just accept Christ right here and now? Old things will be passed away, all things become new. This is what God does. You don't deserve it, you don't earn it, it's a free gift, you just have to receive it. How do you receive it? Like I said, Romans 10, nine and 10, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. If you'd like to do that, I'd like to pray a prayer and have the whole congregation pray this out loud. If there is someone, if you're saying, Brett, that's me, with everybody else's heads bowed, would you acknowledge that and say, Brett, I, I, I need to be forgiven of my sins. I know I'm a sinner and I've felt those repercussions of my sin and I wanna be saved and I wanna be forgiven. Would you acknowledge that by lifting your hand right now? Awesome, cool. I see you guys there, good. Don't let me miss you. Over here, see ya, good. Good, good, nice. If you're online and you're watching us, you can raise your hand if you want by texting me. Just text the number at the bottom of your screen and say new believer right now. And you can text that and I'll know. Uh, I'll find out that you're out there and we'll pray with you too. Lord knows you, he sees you. I'm gonna pray this prayer. Would you pray this out loud with me? And church, would you join these four or five that are saying yes right now? Let's pray out loud. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.